Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Well, we're going to spend a bit of time uh, thinking about what we've just read and um, seeing, yeah, what is God saying to us today? How does that apply? Um, but it just occurred to me as well that this is the first Sunday of a new year, isn't it? Happy New Year. It's 2024. Can you believe it? Isn't that exciting? Or is it daunting? What, what do you feel about the new year? Are you, who's excited for a new year? Who's, yes, another one. Yes, good. Who's thinking, oh, not sure? I think there's a few. There's a few things also going on this year. Different things for different people, but on the whole, that's, that's kind of exciting. I was, um, I was thinking of asking people, what's your New Year's resolution? But I think the question is, do you have a New Year's resolution? Are you, <laughs> are you resolved this year? I, think, uh, I don't think I've made a resolution in years. Has anyone actually gone, I've got a goal? I'd like to make it through the year. I'd like to see 2025. I don't know if we... I don't know if we do that anymore. That's interesting. Um, but whether you make a resolution or not, it's, it's an exciting time, isn't it? The start of the year. It's, it's full of potential. Lots of things could happen this year. Lots of things, if they go well, uh, life could look pretty good by the end of it. Um, sometimes people have uh, big goals, whether it's a, a goal for a certain job. You might be, you've been waiting for a certain job for a while. This might be the year you get it. There might be travelling goals. You've been looking forward to travelling. This might be the year where you can afford it and you head off. Maybe it's the the year where you get the new kitchen or the new bathroom. If you're a student, maybe you clean the kitchen or clean the bathroom. Who knows what this year could hold? Lots of potential. As we look forward to the new year, though, um, I do like to dream about what life could be like a, a year from now. We're also starting this series in 1 Peter. And there is a wonderful encouragement, it's kind of a sharp encouragement from God for us, uh, not to fall into a common trap of focusing just on life here and now. The job here and now, the reno here and now, the the health goals here and now. It's an encouragement as we look to the year ahead to think of the bigger picture stuff. 
Look at how he puts it. This is towards the end of First Peter, very on the screen, very kind of last encouragement from Peter. He says to his readers, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Can you see the wake-up call there? It's that wake-up, be alert, be of sober mind. There is a spiritual world and you have an enemy looking to bring you down. I think it's a, it's a sobering kind of reminder, isn't it? But it's the kind of reminder we need. Imagine for a second that you had an enemy. I don't know if you think you have an enemy. If your enemy was at work, your enemy lived next door to you, wouldn't they take a lot of headspace? When you're in conflict with someone, you're thinking, oh, when am I going to see them next? What's going to happen? How's it going to play out? We start to get stressed, anxious, we lose sleep. What happens in animosity is it takes a lot of our headspace. Do you know that you do have an enemy, God says? The devil looking to devour you. The problem with him is that he doesn't take our headspace. The problem with him is that he's out of sight and so out of mind. And so as we look forward to 2024, what are we looking forward to? God's encouraging us, sharpen our spiritual eyes. See what is really going on this year. Stand firm this year. This year could be one that results in eternal glory and praise and honour. Wouldn't that be a good thing to get out of the year? That would be bigger than a promotion. So friends, why don't we pray? Let's pray for this series, pray for the new year, and then we'll work through the, the text that we've read. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of life and new life and a new year. We thank you for the, the time you'll give us to get to know you better, to grow in our assurance of salvation through Jesus, and to grow in our obedience to him by the Spirit. Father, as we start this series looking at 1 Peter, we pray that you'd give us the spiritual vigour to heed your word, to wake up from our slumber, to be alert and sober-minded, to stand firm through whatever trials come in 2024. We know that you're a God who loves us and sustains us, and so we ask for all this assured of your help. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, well, keep your Bibles open at First Peter. We're going to start working through the passage now. Uh, and First Peter, if you haven't picked up, is a letter. It's a letter written uh, from Peter to these recipients. And so to understand it, we really need to work out who, who's writing it and who is it to. And if you see there in verse 1, you see the author's name is Peter. He put his name right at the start, just like when we make a phone call, so the recipients know who they're hearing from. But who is this Peter. If you had to flesh out the picture of who this man is, what, what would you say? Where would your mind go back to? Would it go back to the Gospels where Jesus first called Simon Peter? Come and follow me. Would it go back to that man who actually saw Jesus? Can you imagine that? He ate with Jesus. He spoke with Jesus. He was interacting with Jesus in a, a way that we haven't. He's even the Peter who, when Jesus was on trial, denied Jesus. He's the Peter who said, I want nothing to do with Jesus if it's going to involve that kind of suffering that I might get drawn into. But after Peter denied Jesus three times in his trial, do you remember Jesus restored this Peter three times after the resurrection? After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to him and said to him, Peter, 
Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Then feed my sheep, Jesus said. This is the Peter that Jesus called to be a shepherd of his people, to care for Jesus' people, to teach them. And that's what Peter did with the rest of his life. He devoted his life to shepherding Jesus' people. And even though he's long gone, Peter's shepherding ministry continues today. As we read through 1 Peter, we're going to be shepherded by Peter, but more importantly by the Lord, to follow him. So that's Peter. That's who he was. What about the recipients? Who's he writing to? Can you see it there in the next paragraph? There's an interesting title, he says. He says, to God's elect exiles. To God's elect exiles. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Just, just pause for a second. Elect exiles. Those are two interesting words. They both start with E. They sound similar, but they couldn't be further apart, could they? What, what is an elect person? It's someone God has chosen, someone God loves and is drawing near to himself. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. What about an exile? That's someone cast off. In the Old Testament, it's someone under the judgment of God. And so elect exiles, that very opening, it's a, it's a paradox. It's like saying to God's cherished rejects. But it's the kind of paradox that God does all the time, isn't it? When God the Son came into the world, he didn't come to be served, did he? He came to serve. That's a paradox. How are we saved? We're saved through Christ, crucified. God's King, his powerful chosen Son, dying as a criminal in our place for our sins. It's, it's a paradox. It doesn't seem to work. But that's the way God saves. His wisdom is bigger than ours. And so elect exiles are like the Christ crucified. Peter reminds them of the spiritual reality. You're chosen by God. You're loved by God. Isn't that a wonderful thing for them to hear? Especially since they are exiles. They are scattered. As they look around, they probably think, we we don't feel chosen. We don't feel elect. Look at our experience. We're kind of scattered through the world. We're not that important. We're scattered. Through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I looked up a a map to see where these places were, and there was a little detail I found quite encouraging. If you were here last week, this may be an encouragement to you too. Sorry, last year, not last week. Do you remember last year, we were preaching through Philippians, the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians. And as part of that series, we were looking at where did Paul go? As Paul spread the gospel, where did he go? And he started off over there in the east uh, and he headed across, um, kind of in that direction. And what Paul wanted to do was to turn right there to head northeast, up towards Bithynia, up towards North Galatia. But the Holy Spirit stopped him. This is in Acts 16. The Holy Spirit stopped Paul from spreading the gospel where he wanted to take it. Isn't that a confusing thing why would the holy spirit stop the gospel spreading and the holy spirit sent paul that way and over to philippi and other places it's a confusing kind of thing in acts and we're not really told why when i looked at a map though at where peter is writing to i thought oh that's kind of cool he's writing to believers up there in pontus in galatia in cappadocia asia and bithynia So although Paul didn't understand, why is he going off to Philippi? He didn't get it. From God's perspective, he's carving out that space and saying, that's okay, I'm going to send Peter there. God's got it in control. 
Can you see the way that fits together? He didn't see it, but God's got it. I reckon this is so encouraging as we prepare to move to Mayfield. As we were looking for a place to meet, we were thinking next door would be nice, that would be really convenient. Didn't work out, so we looked further and further afield. And, and we weren't looking to go to Mayfield. We were just praying for a space nearby. And you kind of think, but we'd like to be planting maybe to the west, maybe to the south. Isn't that where we'd like to go for a year if we're, if we're out? We don't know what's going on. But God's always been directing his people where he wants them to be. And when they're there, they'll share the gospel and we're in his hand. So I found that a little encouragement, tiny detail, a bit of encouragement for us as we head to Mayfield. But back to the passage. What else do we learn about the recipients, these elect exiles? Well, we're given three phrases in parallel uh, at the bottom of that paragraph. You can see them on the screen. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. These are phrases that, that Peter uses to describe who his recipients are. Now, when it comes to these three phrases, in, in one sense, it seems simple enough. It's all according to God's plan and it's for the purpose of obeying Christ through the, the work of the Spirit there in the middle. But one of the questions we've got to ask is, what, what's according to the foreknowledge of, of God the Father? What, what are these things attached to? What do they modify? These phrases kind of sit there in space needing to, to modify something. And if you've got an NIV, the translators have they've helpfully put in the word chosen at the front there. We, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You're chosen so that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, you would obey the Son. Now that's good, but the word chosen isn't actually there in the, in the original text Peter wrote. They've gotten it from the, the word elect further up. Chosen, elect, same thing. The translators have put it down there closer to these phrases to say that's what they modify. It's, it's about their election. They're choosing. And that's good. That's true. But something that kind of misses by putting the word chosen there is that they're not only chosen according to the Father's knowledge. They're also exiles according to the Father's knowledge. The word exile and chosen or exile and elect, grammatically, they they sit side by side. And this is significant because for those reading this letter, it's encouraging them that Not only is their their blessed state with God as his chosen ones according to his plan and and for obedience to the Son, but their existence as exiles, their suffering, the bad things in their life, those are according to the foreknowledge of God. Those are to help them grow in obedience through the work of the Spirit. Can you see the significance there? Very different view when hardship comes. Is this in God's hands or is it out of his hands? It's in his hands. Always in control, the good days and the bad. Why? To grow us in obedience to the Son through the work of the Spirit. What he's doing here is is opening up our spiritual eyes. Be alert, he says, sober-minded. When the trial comes, God's in control. He's working in and through it to grow you in obedience through the work of the Spirit. So that's the recipients. That's how they are described for us. In the rest of the passage, he really continues this push to say, open your eyes to the spiritual reality, the wonderful thing that God has for you. And the three big points we'll see is that we have a living hope, he starts with. It's displayed in testing times. If only we'd believe it, see it, treasure it, and live it out. 
These are in your handouts too, I believe. But let's work there with, we have a living hope. Look there in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Do you rejoice when you read that? Praise be to God. You have new life through Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. You've been born again, he says, for those who follow Jesus. This is the life that Nicodemus asked Jesus about. Do you remember Nicodemus in John's Gospel? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Uh, He would teach God's word to to God's uh, people or to Israel at the time. And when Jesus turned up, Jesus started teaching everyone about the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus heard him, but didn't quite hear him. So Nicodemus at night time went to see Jesus just to kind of ask him, what, what are you talking about kingdom of God? Effectively, Nicodemus says, how, how do you get into the kingdom of God? How, how does someone enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. Now we hear that phrase and we kind of know it. It's been around for long enough that we, we kind of get there's something to it. But Nicodemus heard it and said, what? It doesn't make sense. You can't be born again. Think of the poor mother. How does that work? But he was thinking in human terms. See in the picture there, he's, it's like he's patting an invisible dog. His hand is going down. Uh, often in these kinds of pictures, a hand going down is pointing to an earthly idea. It's, it's thinking about life down here. He's, he's got his glasses on that are just thinking in human terms. Born again, that doesn't make sense. But we do that same thing today. We, we often use ideas like born again as in turning over a new leaf. Or a new resolution, or I feel like a new man. I've, I've changed, I've, I've kicked a bad habit, I'm, I've self-improved in some way. We're thinking in human terms. But Jesus points up to heaven and says, no, no. To be born again, it's a work of the Spirit. You've got to be born again by the Holy Spirit. It's not turning over a new leaf. It is someone outside of you doing a radical work in you by His Holy Spirit. It's out of your control. You cannot do it. It is much bigger. New life, born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what are we born again into? He says there we've been given new birth into a living hope. A living hope. There's kind of two aspects to this, isn't there? The living hope is the opposite to a dead hope. What's a dead hope? Can you think of a dead hope? A dead hope is something that it's not really going to happen. You're hoping for something, but it's dead in the water. It's like, ah, it's, what's the point? A living hope is one that, hey, that's going to happen. It's like a certain thing. Jesus has been raised, therefore I will be raised because I follow him. I'm safe with him. It's a certain hope. But the certainty of this hope, that in the future we'll be raised with him, actually gives legs to our hope today. It changes the way you live, doesn't it, when you have a living hope. That's what we're born into. It changes the way we approach all sorts of different things. Um. It changes things. Yesterday, uh, my wife Bo got some um, orange trees. We're just kind of planting up the garden. And I really like New Year, new trees. I'm thinking, this is going to be wonderful. Who, who doesn't enjoy gardening uh, at this time of the year? It's, it's good stuff. But as we kind of put in our orange trees and, and got that picture of, you know, a year from now, sitting under them, drinking big orange juice and, um, you know, the world's perfect, everything's peachy. Uh, we were kind of reminded as the mosquitoes swarmed that no, this isn't, this isn't where heaven's going to be. 
the forever home idea that we could maybe renovate a bit and make a forever home, that, that's not what the living hope looks at. The living hope says, homes are good. They're, they're great places to serve, great places to live, but they're temporary, aren't they? They're, in a sense, tents made out of bricks and, and timber because I don't know how long I'll live in mine. Less than 200 years, and 200 years is nothing in the scope of what a living hope looks at. We look at eternity. So the, the big picture for us, we look at the good and appreciate it, but we're not going to be satisfied here on earth. We're not going to be satisfied by anything fully here. We're looking at verse 5, aren't we? What do we want in verse 5? An inheritance that can never perish, never spoil and never fade. One that's kept in heaven for us. There's something much bigger. Those with living hope are less concerned now with being true to ourselves as being true to Christ. We want our lives to imitate him, to reflect him. We want his glory to to go through us. We're free to focus less on ourselves and, and these things and get on with serving others the way that he did. That's what flourishing looks like, serving others as we look forward to Christ's return. Or the legacy that we aim to leave behind. What does a living hope hope for in the next generation? My kids are at school. They get homework. They get homework in kindy. Did you get homework in kindy? Yeah, I'm like, are you sure you got homework? Yep, Dad. Okay, you better do it. Um, Our kids bring home homework. But we've also got Bible time and prayer time as a family. We want to be praying with them. And there'll be nights where, look, we don't have the energy to do both. We, we hardly have the energy to do one. When they clash, the choice is easy for a living hope. We're going to pray with our kids. We want them to read the Bible. They'll, they'll get the grades they need to do what they need to do down the track. God's in charge. He's in control. Our legacy to them is to raise them to know their Father in heaven. That's what matters more. The living hope impacts every aspect of life. I'm sure you could share many examples as well. But let's keep moving on. We have a living hope, and it's a hope displayed in and through testing times. I'm going to read verse 6 in a sec, but I've got something for you to do. When we read it, it's going to talk about temporary earthly trials, but it gives an eternal reason for the temporary trials. I want you to try and spot what's the eternal reason for the trials and griefs we face. Look in verse 6. He says, In all this kind of salvation... You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Did you see the reason there? Why do you suffer grief in trials now? So that the proven genuineness of your faith would result in praise, glory and honour. It's not just so your faith would result in... I often think your faith results in glory and honour. It's different. It's your proven genuineness of your faith. That's different, isn't it? There's, there's a public aspect to proven genuineness in a sense. There's a declaration. Let's just sit on this for a second and, and think about what does it mean? The proven genuineness of faith... Uh, isn't a fair weather faith. I remember having a, a coffee with a guy down at Two Hands. Uh, and he was interested about Christianity. He was trying to understand what, what do Christians believe, what does the Bible teach. And so we're having one of those really just um, introductory conversations about how, how are you saved? 
Um, and so we're talking about how we're saved by trusting Jesus. It, it's really that stuff. We're saved not by doing good works. We can't do anything to contribute to it. We entirely trust Jesus. We have faith in him. And he got it. He'd, he'd kind of take a sip of coffee and be like, okay, I got it. It's all him. We're saved, trusting him. That's great. And, and you're sitting there thinking, yeah, it's fantastic. It's, it's great to see. But then the next sip of coffee, he, he'd kind of think, hang on a second. It was a funny conversation. went back and forth, back and forth. He'd say, but Sam, it can't work like that. Because think of it. If you could say you trust Jesus, so you're, you're safe, you're, you're saved. And then you could just go and do the most horrible thing if it doesn't depend upon your good works. People could say they trust Jesus, but actually just go and do whatever they want. It can't work, Sam. What's the problem? The problem's the view of faith, isn't it? The problem is understanding what, what is faith. You see, as we, we had that conversation, and I, I probably just wasn't also clear enough in my speech. He was understanding faith as something you can just say. Yeah, empty, empty words. Yeah, I trust Jesus. I'm good. Tick that box. Do what I want. But that's not the faith of the Bible, is it? The, the faith of the Bible is putting yourself in the hands of Jesus. I trust him. My eternity is in his hands, not mine, not my good works. I belong to him. It's a committing of yourself to him. And the way you tell the difference between saving faith, real faith, genuine faith, and that other kind, that kind of fair weather, empty faith, one way you can tell the difference between the two is trials, testing. If there's hardship attached If you say, I trust Jesus, and something comes back in opposition, and you don't really, then you're pretty quickly going to say, actually, no, I don't. I want nothing to do with Jesus, like Peter did three times. I deny him. I don't want to be associated with him if that's going to cause me suffering. That's fair weather faith. That's not real faith. There's no glory in that. But the kind of faith that saves is the one that's genuine and proven genuine. When the trial comes, when hardship comes... It's the faith that says, yeah, okay, I still trust Jesus. I'm still going to stand with him, be associated with him, even though it's going to cost me. We read about this sort of faith a few years after Peter wrote this letter. Um, Back to the time of Rome. Have you ever heard of the fire of Rome, the great fire in Rome? It's kind of mid-60s AD. Um, I think at that stage Rome had about 14 districts, about 14. And this fire wiped out 10. Um, Three were really flattened and and the other kind of seven were effectively done. Ginormous fire. And the emperor at the time was a guy called Nero. Now after the fire kind of ripped through and and destroyed Rome, uh, there were these rumours that started to go about that maybe Nero had caused it. Maybe Nero had started it. Maybe Nero had a, a building project he wanted to do and he just thought I might just burn off a little patch so I can build and the fire took things out of control. And so in response to this, we actually read what Nero did to try and deal with the rumours. It's not going to go well for him if that rumour takes off. And so there's a historian, Tacitus, who writes this for us. He says, to suppress this rumour, Nero fabricated scapegoats. He passed the buck. And he punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. I think that's because Christians, you know how we call each other brother and sister? We're kind of family in Christ. And then people would get married in church and the outsiders would think, what, was that a brother and sister? What's going on there? That's depraved. They, they didn't understand. So Christians had this bad name because of the way they, they lived. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. 
Then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark. Nero opened up his gardens kindly to display these torches so people could come and look at them, ignited after dark. Isn't that an incredible witness? These are our brothers and sisters. Centuries ago, suffering came because they were associated with Christ. They could have fled. They could have said, no, 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 I don't know him. I've, I've got nothing to do with him. Would have been much easier for them. But instead, they chose to bear the name of Christ. And in so doing, their faith was proved genuine, yes. But what a testimony to the world about what truly matters. Christ is worth more to me, they say, than an easy life or an easy death. Christ is worth more. Can you just imagine being there and seeing it? The rest of Rome started to have pity on the Christians. They looked at them and went, what's going on? How are they enduring? There must be something more than what we see. Open your spiritual eyes. According to another historian, Eusebius, uh, Peter himself suffered a similar fate under Nero. He writes that Emperor Nero, publicly announcing himself as the chief enemy of God, was led on in his fury to slaughter the apostles. Paul is therefore said to have been beheaded at Rome and Peter to have been crucified under him. You know, it's one thing to declare that Christ is king, isn't it? But to give up your life for it? That speaks volumes. In this way, trials are not just hardships to be endured, are they? Trials are not just things that we go, okay, this is going to be a hard season, I'm going to get through it, and then suffering will stop and we're good. Trials actually produce something. Trials actually give an opportunity that a lack of trials does not. Trials produce this platform to bring great praise, glory, and honor to Christ. To say, see what this person's going through? Christ is worth even more than getting out of that. Christ is worth more than the idol of comfort and ease. Christ is worth more than getting a promotion if that's holding you back. Christ is worth more than being included at school. He's worth more than being spoken well of in the workplace. Even in sickness, we cling to Christ because he clings to us. He loves us and we will praise his name. It's one thing to say it. But to endure it through trials, that's a powerful public display. So I wonder what God's going to bring you this year in 2024. Is there going to be a trial? Well, most likely. That's a year's a long time. We, we all go through trials of various sizes and kinds. Times when Satan would love to see you just step back a bit from Christ. Just give a bit of distance. Oh, I don't know if I want to go through this with him. Times where we don't feel chosen feel elect, feel like an exile. But this is the point. Election and exile go together. Chosen and valued goes with suffering. This is the world that crucified the Christ. Those who are his will walk in similar sufferings on their way to glory. When trials come, we endure them, and that will result in glory and honour and praise in eternity. But here's a flip side. Who gets the glory and honour and praise? Did you see who says in the passage? It's a bit ambiguous. 
Is it Jesus' glory and honour and praise? Well, we know he'll be gloried and praised and worshipped when he returns. But there's also glory and honour and praise for you when Christ returns. The Bible paints many pictures of Christ's return, coming on the clouds, coming with angels, coming from heaven. It's going to be glorious for him. But there's so much glory, it kind of slops over onto his people as well. He shares it with them. We read in Matthew 25, God's saying to his people, well done, good and faithful servant. He lavishes praise on his servants, us. Jesus honours Christians in the same passage. He will welcome them saying, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Or in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus shares his glory with believers. Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, the one who endures trusting him through this life, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Isn't that incredible? Will you sit on Jesus' throne? Yeah. Doesn't that seem presumptuous? Doesn't that seem like that picture we saw weeks ago of the the cat and dog before the throne and the cat saying, God, you're on my throne? Jesus says, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. That's incredible. The glory that you will share with Christ when he returns is staggering. It's incredible that we're not only saved from judgment to glory, to glory. Which brings us to our final point. We'll move quicker through this one. We have a living hope displayed in and through testing times. If only we would see it, believe it, grab hold of it, treasure it. Look there in verse 10. I'm going to read and I want you to look out for all the different people focused on the salvation God gives. Look in verse 10. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, that's the Old Testament guys, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. They were looking forward to it in the Old Testament days. Verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you, That's the New Testament guys, the apostles, the evangelists. Those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Isn't that incredible? From the Old Testament through to the New, the the prophets, the apostles, the preachers, everyone is focused on this salvation. They're all looking in on it. That's what everyone is looking to. Wake up, God says. Is this on your list for 2024? Is that what you're focused on for 2024? Don't get distracted. If you're a picture person, he's kind of saying, don't be that guy. Everyone's looking at the salvation. They know what's going on and he's daydreaming. Don't be that guy. Don't get caught out. The Old Testament we've just seen in our series last year, the coming of the Christ, all points to the coming of Christ to suffer and die and rise. That's where the action is. When the trials come, don't let them drag your attention off that reality. Don't turn inwards. Don't look down to ourselves. Satan is prowling, God says. God is sanctifying. Focus on the salvation that is coming. Or if these examples of Old Testament and New Testament guys don't work, look at the end of verse 12. What about the angels? Even angels long to look at these things. Isn't that incredible? 
Picture God there with the, the kind of cosmic crowd around him, leaning in, looking at the earth. We read in Ephesians that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms. They're looking on. Do you, do you like being the center of attention? No? Do you like being in the spotlight? No? Well, it's too bad because the cosmos is looking in at what God is doing for his glory. Looking in and seeing, how did Christ save that guy? How did Jesus save Sam? We, we know he's a sinner. He did. He died for him. The Christ was crucified. This is crazy. The angelic realm looks in to see God's plan unfolding, his salvation unfolding. That is what the whole cosmos is looking in on. So don't be that guy in 2024. Focus on the salvation God has for you. Open your spiritual eyes. Be sober. Be alert. Satan prowls. He wants to devour you. But God has bigger things. Make it a year where we focus on God. How about I pray? We're going to need God's help, aren't we, to do that for a year. Let's pray that God would help us. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for the new birth you've given us. Not into a dead hope, but a living hope, secured by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We thank you that today we are your sons and daughters. We are your children. We can enjoy life with you. And Father, we pray for your help. We pray for the year ahead. Only you know what's going to happen. We pray that whatever comes, whether it's a year of trials and testing or a year of ease, which might actually be a harder trial for us to stay focused in, we pray that you would help us to remain focused and vigilant, aware that Satan longs to devour us, but assured that we are safe in your power as we trust in the Saviour. Would you help us to do that for his glory? And in his name we pray. Amen.